The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Good morning. You have Money in Your Life, a weekly radio program about the influence of money in your life. I'm Brian Farr. And I'm Ann Hutchins. And, you know, when I was a partner in an investment management firm 16 years ago, I would occasionally get frustrated with the limited conversations I was having with my clients. It was so easy for us to stay focused on the numbers connected to the portfolio and not explore the larger financial issues being encountered by the owners of those portfolios. It seemed like there was an unspoken rule in much of the investment management world. Do not stray far from rates of return and optimal diversification strategies, you know, or something along those lines. And does that match what you've experienced in the industry? Yeah. In fact, Brian, I felt like I was two people. One, a portfolio manager talking about the market, sector weightings, and rates of return. And the other was the person I was outside of investment meetings. And an assumption that I made was that the rates of return and what won and lost in the portfolio was all clients wanted to talk about and was all there was time to talk about. I still see that with managers. You know, the uh, personal conversation, leaving the personal conversations about values, personal relationship with money, your family legacy, things like that out of the financial planner and managing conversation unless there's a problem. Right, right. Yeah, a problem will get it triggered. But on an ongoing basis, it's definitely a challenge for investment managers to work with the non-financial aspects of their clients' personal finances. Today, our guest, Tim Maurer, uh, he has a lot of wisdom on this topic of communication around personal finances from his year years as a financial planner. In fact, the banner at the top of Tim's website states, Personal finance is more personal than it is finance. Tim, welcome to Money in Your Life. Thank you very much, Brian Ant. Uh, great to join you. Well, good to have you here on the show. Welcome, Tim. So let's start right with the banner on your website. How did you come to uh, understand the importance of personal in personal finance? Well, I, I do have to say that I think I'm biased in this regard. I have always enjoyed the personal and relational interactions with clients, but there are a couple things that specifically led me to this. The first was just an observation many years ago, working with all sorts of clients, as you guys have for many years, and seeing the disparity between how people spend their money. Now, I'm not talking about the income gap that we're hearing a lot about today. That's very important. But I saw clients who had 
income of up to or over $300,000 a year who were still living paycheck to paycheck, while at the same time I had clients who uh, were two teachers or may have been two people who worked for the, the government and retired, and they had more than enough income coming in just from their pensions and millions of dollars saved because they had set their expectations for spending below their income. That was an observation I saw, and, and that seemed to make sense to me. But then I heard this statistic that you guys may have heard from a couple of different resources that over 80% of financial planning recommendations that are made are not implemented. Now, we could probably spend yeah. a whole series of shows on why that may be the case, but personally, I believe it's because we as financial advisors don't do a good enough job of getting into the goals and the personal values of our clients. I believe if we did a better job of aligning our recommendations with their goals and values, we would see higher rates of implementation. Okay. Okay, that's an astonishing number. Eighty percent is not implemented. Yeah, that that certainly fits. I know when when I was in the in the business that we would have a uh, an annual meeting or a semi annual meeting, and then when the client would come back six months or a year later, there would virtually you know four out of five times nothing would have changed. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's a real challenge on that. Absolutely. So what what kinds of things do you find? Um, so you're, you're saying that, that to get into the values to, to, as a financial planner, you want to get more in alignment with what the client's really experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming part of that means you need to get yourself out of the numbers and the rates of return and the, the various investment strategies for that to occur. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. true, Brian. We often have a tendency as financial planners to start with the numbers. You know, most financial planners could tell you off the top of their head because they've done the calculations so many times how much money someone needs to have invested for retirement in order to project a certain level of income. We could just spit those numbers out all day long. But if we do not spend some time asking questions about the intangible aspects of our clients' lives, I feel then we're missing out on a great opportunity to serve them better, but we're also missing out on a great opportunity to enjoy planning more. I, I love asking clients about what is it that sets them on fire about life? What is it that they believe is most important to them? And then helping align the recommendations and the dollars with those goals and values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do, you, do you find that the clients, that, that if you're working with clients who have come, have come over from other management, other managers, they're a little bit surprised that you want to know about their personal life to that extent? Well, absolutely. And, and I certainly have instances where folks seem to almost be caught off guard by the fact that I'm asking them questions. I, I do think that it's almost considered to be some sort of strange niche within the financial planning industry where people do talk a little bit more about what's most important to people in life and what their personal goals are. But I refer back to my training with the Certified Financial Planner Board, the CFP, uh, in their process that they recommend that financial planners follow, they specifically talk right at the front end about gathering information that is not tangible, that is not about the numbers, but really getting to know what is driving this individual, this client, these, uh, this family before going headlong into the numbers. Yeah. Tim, Tim, one of the things that I find is that it's really easy for people to uh, gather the information, their data about the numbers. It's really hard to get to the values conversation. You can set up an hour meeting yeah. and by 55 minutes, you may just be getting to 
the real meat of the matter. And that's the challenge that I find managers talk about is this is a this is not as cut and dried as just looking at a piece of paper and looking at the numbers. This conversation about what the values are and what your goals are takes more time and you can't necessarily put it into, okay, I'll take an hour here. How do you, what's that challenge? How do you meet that challenge? You're absolutely right, Anne. It does require more work, but I do think it's almost overstated the degree to which this line of questioning is a challenge and a difficulty because let's think about it. How do we actually relate to people in life? You don't have to be some sort of trained psychologist, therapist, or life coach in order to get to know someone. And I believe that's what we're really talking about here. I think if you just start with questions about what was the last movie you saw, what kind of music are you interested in, this automatically takes us into the realm of the relatable. This is the way that we talk to our neighbors when we're getting together to watch the football game, when we're at church, when we're with our family. I mean, hopefully we're getting into some conversations that are deeper than just talking about the weather. And and that is the same exact skill and the only skill, really, that is required to get some of this deeper information from clients. And I think it does help, Anne, if financial advisors have a plan, if you will, that they may have a handful of questions that are designed to get them going in that direction. You guys have some neighbors just to uh, your north a little bit there, up in the uh, in the Seattle area. Money Quotient is a nonprofit yep. that actually provides advisors with information and questionnaires that will help them get into some of these questions. I should mention that I'm not getting compensated to mention money questions. (laughs) I've gone out there, met with them. I think their work is absolutely fantastic, and I see financial advisors benefiting from it immensely. That's exactly right. We we put this idea about questions or asking the perfect question into the same realm of figuring out what the return is. Like there's some formula for uncovering what values are. Right. Yeah, you're right, Anne. And it's not it's not as if we we need a Monte Carlo simulation to find out what it is that drives <laughs> right. a person, right? I think yeah. maybe we are sometimes thinking, well, gosh, this is even more complex than retirement planning, but it's not. It's actually what should come natural to most of us. Now, one of the things that I do have to recognize is that it's very possible that many financial advisors out there fit into this typical mold of the type A analytical individual, right? This is one of the things that we hear a lot about. Well, we still, if that, if that is the case, and I know that it's not because I've talked to a lot of financial advisors who have very different personalities, but even if it was the case, we need to recognize that the folks we serve may not think that way. They may be coming to us precisely because they need that type of help, but the only way we can really help them is if we do understand who they are and what it is they want to be about in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's a there's a real shift in here, and it's it's kind of a subtle one, but how does an investment manager decide whether or not they've done a good job overall, and how do they decide if that was a good meeting? And so often, that gets measured by the rate of return, the longevity of the client, the, maybe the referrals that the client brings in because they're happy with the results, where this other that we're now talking about, the, the relational part – I'm wondering if that's part of the issue is that doesn't get included into the success metrics with that client. And that's what you're doing is trying to include that in the success metrics. Absolutely. You know, there's one 
particular tool that I absolutely love. It's called the Money of Life. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it just basically looks like a simple circle with spokes like a wagon wheel. And each of those spokes are kind of uh, on a continuum of 0 to 10, and then each of the spokes has a, a name next to it. Like, it might be finances, but it also might be family or service or worship or work. And in each of those in, uh, in each of those spokes, the objective is for, for you to put a number from 0 to 10 where you stand on that spoke of the wheel. So how good do you rate – forget your money for a minute – but how good do you rate your family life, your life at home, your life at work, your life in terms of health physically – and what we find is this is a great tool to use annually that will actually show us exactly what people are thinking about these other aspects of life. Of course, if, if to anyone this is off-putting and all they want to do is focus on the numbers and rates of return in Monte Carlo simulations, then by all means, do that. But I think what we find and what I certainly have found is that the more we uncover on the personal side of things, the more we understand what the client experience is really like. Mm-hmm. And I like this idea of the uh, money, the money of uh, what's it called? The, uh, the money of life, of li- the wheel of life, yeah. the wheel of life there. That makes sense. And that's I've seen something similar to that. And in working with my clients, when you can, let's say, at the beginning of G- January, you do that and then they come back in in June, you can pull out that sheet of paper that's essentially a memo of the January conversation. And here's the wheel. And it just you're automatically back back into that those aspects of the conversation. You don't have to work so hard to get it started when you when you're collecting it over time. Absolutely, and Brian. And one of the things I find is like financial. Some some advisors say I don't. I just really don't care enough about this stuff. But even if you think of it on not so much of an altruistic level, but a pragmatic level. Look, if, if somebody's finances are fantastic, but every other aspect of their life rain, ranks as a, as a one or a two or a three, then that's going to tell you something about that client and where your relationship with that client is headed. It might be that no matter how good of a job you do on their investment management, they're still going to be disappointed because other areas of their life are dragging their psyche down, and that's, that's playing a, a bigger role. It's trumping whatever the numbers say. And so... Even those who aren't necessarily as interested in getting into these types of conversations, I encourage planners to look into it for that reason alone, that it may have an impact on what they think about your investment management as one specific piece. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, Tim, my experience, this uh, Wheel of Life is a well-used tool with leadership and uh, executive coaching, and mm-hmm. it's interesting that money gets left off of that that piece as a as a next derivative. And my experience in talking with managers about what I do, uh, money managers, financial advisors, bankers, is that in talking in our conversations, they open up about issues that they may have in their financial life or that they may have with their clients. So I, I agree with you that this is a piece that needs to be teased out and opened up and it, it's a human piece. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%, Ann. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so how, say- do you recommend, how do you recommend, Tim, that clients go into this kind of meeting with their planner? Well, I think that we should be very upfront about it. I, I think that uh, we, we should be cognizant of the fact that this may not be 
what someone is expecting as they come through the door. I do find that when you throw out the word financial planning or the phrase financial planning to anyone, their perception is largely going to be determined by their past experience. So if they worked with a stockbroker, then they probably think financial planning is just about investments. If they worked with someone who is predominantly an insurance uh, agent, then they're probably going to think financial planning is mostly about insurance. You see what I mean? At the very least, most people certainly think that almost the totality of financial planning is just investments and insurance. And as all three of us know, that's absolutely not the case. So I think we can help communicate what what our process is about very early on to clients. I, I think that advisors can have this information in some form or another on, on their website as they're describing their services and their introductory packets. I think it's important to let people know what they are walking into so that they may have the expectation that these are the types of conversations we might be getting into. Yeah, you know, an experience that I recently had was listening to a colleague talk about a course that he was in where he listened to a number of different uh, experts. And at the end of it, and they they all said, you know, we should be part of your team. And Brian and I have talked about this, but we, at the end of it, he added up what the fees that each one of those advisors was going to ask him for on an annual basis mm. and that it was going to be 6% wow. that he was paying on an annual basis to people for giving him tax advice and, and estate advice and financial advice. And we're coming up on a break, so maybe we want to take this after the break, but the question would be how do I as an individual sort through what my team should be, and then how I pay my team. Sure. sure. No. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. I look forward to, to answering it after the break. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we have, yeah, that's it. Go ahead, Brian. The, um, and I think that the, the challenge in there might come back to what you were saying, um, that, that uh, Whoever you land with first as a client, you'll end, you might end up saying that's the person who I'm going to pay the most money to, and then I'll try and fit the rest of them in. Sure. So, so there's going to be a, an educational part in teasing this out. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So let's let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back afterwards to uh, to un- unpack this question. Um, we're we're going to uh, be back with our guest Tim Maurer. Uh, if you would like to join our conversation, please call eight six six. or you can email us at moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Brian Farr with co-host Ann Hutchins, and you have Money in Your Life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Anne Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Anne's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? 
If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host Brian Farr, and today our guest is Tim Marr. And we are talking about the personal in personal finance. Before the break, we had a question about fees and how you as an individual work through the the team that you need to assemble and who you need to pay what on a regular basis. And Tim, I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. And I do. I, I think you described a challenge where someone was working with a comprehensive team, but it was as if the left hand didn't necessarily know what the right hand was doing in some regard because they were each charging 1% per year on right. some sort of retainer. And then, as we could all imagine, financial advisor, you don't have to be a financial advisor to realize that if you're going to cut 6% off of your return every year, you're going to struggle to make a reasonable rate of return over time and outpace inflation. So in a situation like that, I think this is where we can apply this more comprehensive thinking of what it is that a client needs. And certainly, while I, I might say I am uh, biased, and I would certainly acknowledge that bias, I tend to think that the financial planner plays a great role as the quarterback of all of these relationships with the right CPA and the right attorney and the right insurance agent and so forth. And so I like to see an arrangement where the financial planner is at the middle of that that wheel, if you will, and then helping folks get the help they need from the attorney because many of those services are more transactional. Someone needs to get their estate planning documents done. Someone needs to update an insurance policy. Someone needs to get their taxes prepared. Those tend to be more transactional in nature, and that way somebody doesn't get stuck seeing 6% of their annual return stripped away just by uh, annual fees. So you're suggesting that somebody go to a financial planner and that the financial planner be the the hub in this spoke and and essentially execute the plan that the financial planner lays out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And 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 I think that this is the way that financial planners in general are trained. Uh, if they happen to have the privilege of going to one of the very few schools in the country that have degree programs in financial planning, they'd get training there, but also from the CFP board and so forth. 
And I do believe that financial planners are trained primarily as generalists. Each of us has typically our own specialty as well, and that may be, that specialty may very well be one of the spokes. But I think that the planner is the one who is best suited to see how everything is working together because that comes back to where this discussion started. It's a comprehensive look at a client and a client experience. So what are some of the resources that people can use to find a planner? There are obviously two schools of thought. One is school of thought is that you go to a fee-only financial planner, and then you go from there. The second is that you go to a financial planner who will manage your assets and on an annual basis, they take a percent, or they have a fee that comes out of those assets and that success. Mm-hmm. What, so what do you, how do, how do people find a planner? How do people find you, for example? Sure. Well, well and I, first off, when you talk about these different ways that people provide advice, I, I want to acknowledge that I do have a personal preference, but I think we should also be able to see that it's the personal preference of the client that really is the most important because regardless of the compensation method, whether it's purely fee-only on an hourly basis or on a retainer or whether it's fee-based with assets under management or in some cases there are still folks doing primarily commission-based work, in each of these cases, there is a unique economic bias. If you're getting hourly financial planning, obviously your planner has an economic bias to extend the engagement. If you're doing assets under management, you may have a bias to shorten the amount of time that you spend with each client and get more clients in because that's what drives your revenue. And obviously, if you're selling products by commissions, in that case, you're going to have a bias to transact. In each of these cases, when I say economic bias, I don't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing, but I do think that different clients will align with these different methodologies in their comfort level and that we as planners should help accommodate them, acknowledge, not necessarily try to shoehorn them into our particular preference, but help them on their path find what it is that's best for them. That's exactly right. So you're you're paying uh, you're giving a nod to the fact that this uh, relationship could, should be a uh, it's a personal relationship. You have to be personal personally relating to your planner, and you also should acknowledge how you like to uh, compensate. I mean, some people like to know that they're paying on an hourly basis, and some people are happy to know that if their assets go up, they can, they'll pay a manager out mm-hmm. of those assets. Yeah, well, and I mean, you, you said it very, very clearly, and this is the most important part. Everything has to be clearly communicated to the client. There should never be any deception, and unfortunately, I'm afraid that the industry of financial advice is fraught with issues when it comes to this level of deception. I think we need to call that out as financial advisors and say, look, this is what it has been in the past. We should be no part of it in the future. When it comes to manipulating or deceiving someone into a particular path that is going to compensate us the best, that is simply wrong. And I'm very, very pleased to see the entire industry moving closer and closer to a 100% fiduciary requirement where every single planner is bound to act in the best interest of the client. I think it's a shame we're not even there yet. Most people don't know that. But I do uh, think that, that, that full disclosure is of the utmost importance right at the beginning of an engagement with a client. 
Tim, I, well, I would just want to emphasize what you just said, because a lot of people don't know about this fiduciary issue. And can, can you just repeat that for people and explain what a fiduciary actually is? Absolutely. So a fiduciary is one who is legally required to act in your best interest. And this is, uh, this is one that we commonly assume uh, individuals or professionals like doctors and uh, attorneys and CPAs, they all do have a fiduciary requirement that they have to act in the best interest of the client. That's where the relationship begins and ends. But in the financial industry, there are really three different levels of authority that people have when it comes to their clients and in terms of the responsibility that they have on behalf of their clients. If someone is a registered investment advisor or a fee-only planner, they are by default acting as a fiduciary. It is their responsibility to act in the client's best interest to put the client ahead of themselves. So that's point number one. We do have a fee-based model where someone may be taking in some fees uh, as a fiduciary, but then they may also be compensated by the sale of products. If we're talking about uh, investment products like mutual funds, stocks, bonds, and so forth, those folks have a, a suitability requirement when it comes to selling someone a stock bond or mutual fund. And it basically just means that it has to be suitable at that point in time in their life only the transaction is covered with this uh, suitability requirement, and, and it's, let's just put it this way. It's a lesser requirement than a fiduciary requirement. There's no right. getting around it. And then we have folks who simply sell insurance products that have no investment component to them, and this is going to be regulated on a state-by-state -state basis, but in most states, the requirement for that individual selling the insurance product is caveat emptor, which, of course, is buyer beware, and that means it's the responsibility of the client or the customer in that case, not the salesperson, to make sure that that customer is getting the very best product. I think it's very important that people do understand the meaningful differences between the three compensation methods and the responsibilities of advisors. Thanks, Tim. That was really clear. So the question, one of the first questions that you want to ask when you're looking for a financial advisor and even ask your current financial advisor is if they are a fiduciary. Absolutely. And yeah. some people some people are afraid to say, well, can, can you explain this to me? Because maybe they have a good personal relationship with the individual. Your relationship right. should only get better with more disclosure, not worse. Mm -hmm. And it's not even wrong to ask, how are you compensated? That right. is not an offensive question. That drives the motivation of a lot of folks, and I think it's very important that people ask their financial advisor, by the way, how exactly are you compensated? Is it only by me? Is it by product companies that you sell products for? How are you compensated? Yeah, you know, this is one of the last taboos to ask how you're compensated. And we really, we really want people to know that it's okay. You ask, you ask people in the store all the time how much things cost. Absolutely. So yeah. And anybody who responds in an overly defensive way, well, they've, they've they probably have something to hide, quite frankly. There's no reason <laughs> to be defensive about how you're compensated. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And in this industry, there are so many fees. Historically, in, in, uh, for certain, there were so many fees that were buried. And Absolutely. so now it's, it's, there's a transition occurring of getting this up to the surface so everybody can just, you know, everybody can be clear on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, one of the um, issues that comes into my office is younger 
uh, people, particularly couples, I see it, but also just individuals. And they're, they're, maybe they're in their first or second job for the first time, they're starting to save some money. And they look at all these choices and they get overwhelmed. They're mm-hmm. not sure. Other than putting money aside in their 401k and doing a checkbox, which is a great thing, that's not to be minimized, mm-hmm. um, they're having a hard time getting started. What do you say when, when you encounter somebody in that category? Well, Brian, I completely understand their dilemma. You know, financial planning has changed an awful lot over the course of the last several decades. It was only 40 or 50 years ago where most of the tools that are available to do financial planning with today were not available at all. You don't even have to go back that far to time where you did not have a 401k, you did not have an IRA, you did not have a Roth IRA. The taxes were nowhere near as complex as they are today. So it's totally understandable when people come to me and say, Tim, I am overwhelmed. I feel like an idiot. Uh, It's almost as though that's the way the system (laughs) sadly appears to be designed. It is overwhelming. So that's the first step is to acknowledge that this is a whole lot of stuff, and it's a lot to figure out, and it's a challenge. That's where we come into play. Uh, What I would recommend if somebody's getting started on that path is Frankly, uh, again, here's our bias, right? I am a financial advisor, but I believe that's the role that we that we serve. I believe that's the, the 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 role that we can add value into folks' lives. There are plenty of great resources, great books, great online free content that I am more than happy to point people in the direction of. But the problem with that is it may very well be information overload. You will find one yep. suggestion to conflict another no matter, in a matter of seconds from the time that right. you discover what you think is a, is a sure thing. And so that's one of the benefits of having somebody to kind of be your guide, guiding you down this path to determine which information is actually applicable to you. You know, Tim, you talk, you point out two really important things. One is that a, a lot of people feel really badly for not having saved enough. And what you just pointed out was that some of it is individual and some of it is the complicated system that has developed over the last 20 years. The And the other piece that you pointed out with individuals, especially with 401ks, Even if you don't go to a financial planner, if you're in a company that has a 401k plan, there are people that are responsible for that plan that you should be asking questions about. Absolutely. We were talking about fiduciaries. Well, each company has a fiduciary obligation now per ERISA for the 401k plan at your company. So if you don't have all the answers that you need when it comes to your 401k, know that your company has a responsibility to provide you with those answers. And that responsibility has really been heightened over the course of the past few years, especially after the financial crisis. So it's absolutely, and I could not agree with you more, guilt is not a good motivator. And I think, uh, I feel bad. I feel like I must be doing something wrong when a client comes to me with their head hung low and said, I know you told me to do this, but I didn't do it yet. I want them to understand that I understand what they're going through. Financial planners are people too, I think that we have in many cases dealt with all of these difficulties in life. And so we should be able to understand we should not not be wagging the finger. We should be coming beside folks and helping people find the path that is going to be best for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. 
I think your your point's really a good one in terms of the complexity. It it does, you know, thirty and forty years ago, uh, it has. It seems like every five years, you could say that there's it's notched up with with greater degree of complexity. So if somebody's twenty or twenty five, thirty years old right now and is fight, trying to find their way into the financial system, you know, in in terms of their own personal finances, it's a much more complicated task than it was for their for their parents. You're absolutely right, Brian. One of the things I do at seminars and with some clients is provide them with basically a uh, a ten step checklist, and and it says, all right, so what do you do with your dollars? It's just a it's a very simple. What do you do with the dollars that are coming in the door? Check checklist number one is pay your fixed expenses. Then you've got your variable expenses. Then you're going to fill the bucket for emergency reserves. Then you're going to pay off any revolving debt. Then you're going to contribute at least the match with your company to make sure you're getting free money. Then you're going to fill up the Roth IRA bucket. Then you're going to go back to the 401k. I won't keep going with this list, Mm -hmm. but I think that helps give people some clarity. All right, the dollars that are coming into my household, where should I be directing these things? So the degree to which we can help simplify uh, what's going on out there and the complexity in the financial world is the degree to which I believe we are effective with clients. I think an old-fashioned way of getting clients was to overwhelm them with our amazing knowledge and how it was all proprietary and we had all the answers and they had none of them. That's a sales technique. That's not how we should be working today. Our job is to help simplify what's going on out there, not make it appear more complex so that clients have to come to us helpless for the help we can give them. That's exactly right. I want to go back just quickly because uh, amazingly, we're coming up on another break to something that you said about going to HR professionals. I had a young couple who were my clients and I suggested that they talk to their HR professionals about the holdings in their 401ks and one one of them came back and she said, you know, I talked I talked to HR and they they told me to talk to the person at the plan, and I called him. I think I woke him up. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that anybody had talked to him before. There is a reluctance on the part of particularly smaller companies mm-hmm. to give any kind of advice. And in that case, where do people go? Wow, it's a great question, Anna. And I think that at the very least, if you're having trouble getting the information you need from HR, going directly to the plan – is going to be hopefully a way that you can start to get some information. I, I think you're right, and I think that's one of the dilemmas with especially small to mid-sized companies is that the HR professionals might be part-time, and they might be doing something else with the majority of their time, and they may not be really well-versed in how the, the, uh, the plan is put together. I tell you this, to those HR folks, you need to be. These days, it's, it's only becoming more restrictive, and companies, in some cases, CEOs, are being sued because they did not do a good enough job communicating the important facets of the 401k plan to their employees. So for human resources people, hear this and act on this. It's very important that you have an answer to these questions. You can at least get somebody going in the right direction. If you're one of the employees who's not getting the answers, then I recommend taking a look at the customer service numbers on the uh, the 401k statement and getting in touch with somebody there who can help give you the answers. They are at least in that business, and they should be able to give you some direction. Okay. That's really good advice. 
That's really good advice. Well, we do need to pause for a break, but we'll be back in just a minute with our guest, Tim Maher. If you'd like to join our conversation, please call 866-472-5790 or email us at moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from you. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host, Brian Farr. You have money in your life. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host, Ann Hutchins, and our guest, Tim Maurer. Before we go um, jump back into the conversation, I want to give two points about Tim. Well, actually, three. If you would like to learn more about Tim work, Tim's work, you can go to timmaurer.com. That makes it very simple, timmaurer.com. That's M-A-U. R-E-R. And the other way you can learn about Tim's work is go to Forbes, and he does a, a blog that's a uh, – I know I've just really enjoyed scrolling back through the various topics he's worked with. So if you put Tim Maurer's name into a Forbes search list. And then the third thing is Tim's book, The Ultimate Financial Plan, Balancing Your Money and Life, and that's out by uh, Wiley. And you can find that at his website or through Amazon. So there's a whole bunch of ways to learn more about Tim uh, and Tim's work. Um, and I think what I would like to do is come back to something you mentioned earlier, your list of – you had a checklist of 10 items. And let's go, let's go to the front end of that list. Those sounded like really basic, good, useful suggestions for listeners. What's yeah, on Brian, the top? So if we are trying to decide where our money should be going um, – 
we're going to start with fixed expenses. We're then going to go to variable expenses. And the third one is going to be setting aside money for emergency reserves. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. This sounds like an oversimplified point. Everybody you would imagine thinks, hey, I, I got this. I don't need your help to tell me how to do this. But I'll tell you, in especially uncertain times, like the ones we've been in, especially since 2008, but quite frankly, going all the way back to the tech bubble bursting in 2000, I think people have an increased sense of anxiety about what's going on in the markets, what's going on in the tax code, what's going on in the economy, and that fear really breeds the wrong kind of activity when people look at their their money. So what I encourage people to do is to start by controlling what they can. People want to know what's going to happen with the economy. Are we going to have a correction? We've got so many different factors that can scare us into inaction. I encourage people to start with what they can actually control. It's amazing how you see people's stress level go down. So acknowledging what's going on with your fixed and variable expenses is the key way that we can actually control what happens with our money. You know, the truth of the matter is, no matter where you live, no matter what your income is, you are responsible for, for figuring out a way to spend less than you earn. That's, that's each of our first job as the, the CFO, the chief financial officer, at least by default, of our household. So that's our job in deciding how much we're going to spend on fixed expenses like housing, utilities, as well as variable expenses like Netflix and eating out and whatever it is that you spend your money on is a great first step. Well, I can't. I I would just like to echo that. I've seen that in my office over and over again. When I sit down with people and we work through those those fixed expenses, variable expenses, and if there's money left over for savings, or if in fact it's negative, the the it's like the temperature changes in the room. They just go, "Oh, that's what's going on." Yeah, absolutely, and, and that, Brian. And the level of, of uns- the level of I... uncertainty. The level yeah. of uncertainty that people live with, when you can reduce that kind of uncertainty, and it's it's brilliant what you're saying, rather than getting fixed on what the news programs are saying, then to focus on ourselves first, on our finances, our own personal finances, then that'll settle us down so we can more effectively navigate through what's going on out there. You're right, Brian. And certainly there are other decisions we can make. There are things we can do about the insurance decisions that we have in life and the investment decisions that we have in life and the savings decisions that we have to make. There are things that we can do in each of these that are certainly more complex than navigating our our, uh, our fixed and variable expenses. But I'll tell you what, when I want to know what the temperature is of a particular household's finances, I just look at how they spend their money, if they do manage their cash flow wisely, if they use some sort of budgeting tool, if they don't have revolving debt. This is always the key to me to know what the temperature is of an individual household's financial situation. It's how we we spend these very first few dollars. And then the more room we can leave in that equation, the less stress we're going to have. I think what you're both talking about is really great because it it begins the conversation about priorities. What are my priorities and Mm -hmm. are my priorities reflected in the way that I'm spending my money? Because that's quite often where there is a mismatch in the in the spending and the aspirational spending. 
Right. You're absolutely right, Ann. And, and when we can see our priorities more clearly, then that will help us make the decisions that may appear difficult on how we should be spending our money. Right. So if we begin a planning engagement and somebody says one of my chief values is education, not only for me, but also for my children. Well, then when you come to the point of, of having to decide how much you're going to save for education versus how much you're going to put into going out to the movies, you may have a, a decision to make, but it's your priorities that will guide you in that decision. I want to mention, too, guys, there are two tools that I love to help people with this default position of chief financial officer in their households. It's often good to have a tool to help navigate how do I manage the spending in, in our household. The first one, I'm sure you guys have heard of both of these, but the first one is Mint.com. Mint is free, which is probably the best thing about it. I don't think it is the best budgeting software out there, but it is certainly the best free software that is out there. I, I considered budgeting with training wheels, um, but it, it does some amazing things. The other one that I really do prefer over any is YNAB. That's Y-N-A-B, which stands for You Need a Budget, and you can find it at YNAB.com. There is a cost to YNAB. Um, it's reasonable. You only pay it once, and you don't have to pay it again for upgrades. It's the most elegantly simplistic, sophisticated budgeting tool I have seen yet. I've been using it personally for over a decade to very, very good effect. And so these tools will help us on that path so that we don't just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, how do I handle this? It's just too much. So say this again. It's it's just four letters, WNAB.com. Well, it's it's Y-N-A-B dot com. Like, oh. you need a budget, Brian. Y-N-A-B. Okay, good. I'm glad I got it clarified. That sounds like it. a great tool. Yeah, and Brian, I love it. to clarify one I... other thing, guys. Budgeting is not just for poor people. This, yeah. is, this is, a, is a big mistake that people presume, well, I must make too much money to have to budget. I should not have to... I should not have to sink to the levels of tracking my cash flow. That doesn't make any sense in the world. I think that, that people who have more income have more to, uh, to benefit from budgeting because they may have enough that they, they, they don't have to go to their credit card at the end of the month, but that doesn't mean that there's no waste in their budget. So you can really do some amazing things for folks that are blessed with a higher income and budgeting. Uh, Tim, what do you tell people who are just starting out, people you know, in their 20s, maybe they just got their first real job, maybe their parents never budgeted, so they don't really know how, what's a reasonable percentage to be spending on housing, on entertainment. How do, how do you begin to, to suggest that people think about a budget when they're just starting out? Or even, I mean, they may not be just starting out. They may have no frame of reference for it. Sure. And I remember a great piece of advice that my father gave me when I was literally not even 10 years old yet, when I had enough of an allowance or I'd get a little bit of money for birthday and whatnot. And he said back then, no matter what you do, when you don't have much money, begin the, the habits that are, that are the uh, ideal in the realm of of money management. And he was suggesting for me that I set aside 10% at least for savings and that I set aside 10% at least for giving. And what he told me was, if you don't get comfortable with these rhythms when you don't have much money, it's going to be very difficult for you to get comfortable with those rhythms when you do have more money. I can't tell you how true I have seen this to be in my life and in the lives of clients. That comes back to our priorities. 
And this 10% kind of grandfatherly wisdom that's just hanging around out there, you know what? If you run the numbers, if somebody starts their career very young in their 20s and they save 10% for retirement all throughout their working career, the numbers are going to work out in just about every one of those cases. It's not quite that simple. Uh, And what I do recommend is when somebody's starting out, I recommend that you start by saving more, maybe even up to 20% or more. And then when you get married and you have kids, your, your savings level might dip below 10% for a period of time because they're the most expensive years of our lives. So um, that's a good place to start, I think, and is with some basic guidelines that will set a standard for what you want to do in your money. That's great. That, that is good. really great because so, you may decide that you're going to spend more on housing than somebody else who may spend more on a car. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. And right. if you if you start your finances by always uh, setting aside the first 20 percent, and that's, you know, I'm imposing a little bit of my belief there that it's a good thing to give as well. But if you only ever consider utilizing 80 percent of your household income to support yourself beyond your saving and your giving, then it never really actually feels like a, a hardship to do it. You never have to cut back on your spending because you only started there. Yep. That sounds good. You know, we spent some time talking about the front end of the cycle for saving money and getting started. We have about three minutes left. Tim, what is your golden nuggets for people who are f- approaching retirement or early in retirement? What What do you find is the most helpful things that people in that stage uh, can use? Brian, I think it's reframing what we believe retirement to be. Frankly, I think that the baby boomers were sold a bill of goods with the notion of what a quote-unquote traditional retirement is, where you save, you work your butt off, maybe even at a job that you hate for your entire life. You save as much as humanly possible so that then at some point in the future you can kick your feet up and do nothing at all. Uh, this, This has never actually been the case for any generation until the baby boomers. And obviously what the statistics show is that they're failing to, to, to get there. Their parents and their parents' parents just worked their butt off until they could not work any longer. They didn't have 401ks or IRAs. They lived off of a pension, some Social Security, and a little bit of savings. The game has completely changed. So I recommend that people stop looking at retirement as a two-act play, where the first act is you work like crazy until you almost drive yourself into the grave, and the second act is where you do no work whatsoever and just enjoy kind of blissful hedonism for the remainder of your days, I recommend they consider a three-act play and take a look at what act two should look like. I think it's a time of life where you can and should even have some additional income. Maybe you just go to part-time. You're not saving as much for retirement anymore, but you're allowing your retirement nest egg to build more and more by not taking money out of it. And I recommend that people do the best they can to find their dream job. Maybe it will pay a lot less, but I'm sure you guys have heard the quote, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Obviously not all of us or any of us love every part of our jobs, but if you can find something that you feel more passionate about in retirement, you can allow that to just go on into perpetuity. As doctors have proven, we're not actually meant to just stop doing every productive activity in life. So I recommend trying to find a new path, a new vision for what your retirement might be. That sounds great. On that note, that's a great note to end our show on today because I think that there's a lot of people who are, as you said, needing to change the expectation. And I love the framework of an act too, that there's this, that, that, that it can be expanded. So Tim, thank you very much. You brought a lot of good ideas to our show this morning and I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate it. 
Thanks, Thank you, Tim. Guys. My pleasure. And who's our show? Who's on the uh, show next week? Well, it follows very nicely with this. Next week, we're going to talk about behavioral finance. Our guest is Michael Pompian, who has spent his career studying, practicing, and writing about behavioral finance and wealth management and why people make decisions calmly in times of financial difficulty while others are running around like the sky is falling. <laughs> yeah. Until So listen up and send us your questions. Until then, I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. Let's keep this conversation going because you have money in your life. Thank you for making Money in Your Life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.